This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Blank Podcast, the podcast where we delve into those difficult moments with some well-known guests. I am Giles Paddy Phillips and with me today, as per, is Jim Daly. Your, uh, your intro to me are getting less enthusiastic. It used to be and through the magic of the internet and he's got a wonderful face and great hair and he lives in Cheshire. Now it's just as per I Jim Daly. I don't think I ever said any of those things. <laughs> You might have been thinking I was saying them, but... Yeah, I've just imagined that. You have got great hair, um, though. You've had it cut, have you? I have had it cut, yeah. Actually, it wasn't this week's episode. Whose episode? Was it last week? Emma Kennedy said I had luscious hair. She did. So that's... My wife was very jealous when I told her that. She was so impressed. (laughs) Uh, I think that's the highlight of the blank podcast for me over the last two years. Emma Kennedy saying I've got luscious hair. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with her. No, and I think... um, I think, yeah, we have to take these compliments on you know in sometimes i think we need to sort of retake them on board absolutely yeah yeah how's your week been (laughs) so anyway (laughs) good yeah not too bad actually not too bad at all um it's proper winter now isn't it i'm looking out the window all the leaves are falling off the trees it's grim it's grim grim. but um i don't know there's a beauty there's a beauty in winter i think that would that that um uh in the sort of the stillness of you know the stillness of sort of the scenery, the the freshness. You know, I, I 
I hate it when it's raining, obviously, but like a cold, fresh winter's morning, yeah. I think it's quite invigorating. So there is, I'm trying to find positive. We're, you know, this is a difficult year. I'm trying to find positive. There are no bad in... seasons, I don't think. I think there are, there are better seasons than others, but there's no, no there's I no like the in between seasons. So I like spring and autumn. Um, I'm not mm. a massive fan of the heat of the summer. And yeah. I don't mind the wet and rain. I quite find it quite melancholy. I think if I had to choose over summer or winter, I'd probably go winter. The only thing I don't like is the sort of dark evenings where it gets dark mm. very early. Like, you know, when it gets dark about four o'clock or four, I don't like that particularly. Yeah, well, I definitely suffer from SAD. So for that reason, not a massive fan of winter. But there is something, the sort of snuggly in front of mm. the fire, warm winter evenings. It's raining outside, you know. Uh, yeah. What's that? Petri- petrichor, that's called, isn't it? Petrichor, where the sound of the rain Take your word outside. For it. Uh, I believe that's right. That might be wrong. It does sound a little bit more like an oil Treaters, company, but I think, it is, I think it is petrichor, which is the sound of the rain outside your mm. window. Um, that's quite warming. But I, I agree with you. I, I like spring. Spring is my yeah, favourite. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, my, my birthday's in spring, so that obviously helps. Um, well, actually, less so these days. Um, and also, there's something really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The feeling of, like, potential about yeah, spring. It's hopeful. I love that feeling. It's hopeful. Yeah, massively. And I love that feeling about it. But anyway, look, it's winter, but you can cheer yourself up by listening to a blank podcast. You can. So that's beautiful segue. Anyway, how are you doing? I'm okay, yeah, yeah. Like you, embracing the winter, yeah. um, staying in more. Yeah. And uh, Well, there is a pandemic on as well, so we well, yeah, that got no, that got no choice. We should, <laughs> we should probably mention as well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm okay, yeah, trying to... Just lots of plotting. And people have been asking how I am, and I'm saying, doing a lot of plotting. Not a lot of jotting. A lot of plotting. <laughs> plotting, not jotting. Yeah. <gasps> That's a t-shirt design. It is. Another one. And, and talking plotting, of jotting, jotting, we've got an amazing <laughs> writer on today. Very good. Very, very good link. Good link. Mm. Um, we ha- we've got a legend. We've well, got a writing legend absolute on. legend of writing. Today. Yeah. Yeah. It's the one and only Ian Rankin. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was going to say, do you know, I was just about to say one of the masters of the crime genre but actually, mm. it comes up in the podcast. We and it's something I've considered as well that we shouldn't pigeonhole um, crime writers because they're mm. novels. They are all novels. novels, and the yeah. fact that they are, you know, have a crime element to them doesn't, you know, mean that any less literary than you know general <laughs> fiction. <laughs> Which sounds like a sort of someone from the yeah, army, does, general yeah, fiction. Um, Captain well, Children's as you were s- <laughs> um, Yeah, he's he's a he's a master novelist. Yeah, is a is a fair is a is is a much more accurate mm. way of saying it. And yeah, and this he talks about this and the put it does it does come up and um, it does feel a little. Bit, it's like saying, and I literally said this on a, on during this episode actually, but it's a bit like obviously I work in comedy, and it's like saying female comedian. There is absolutely no reason to say female comedian. No. You're just say, talking about a comedian. And and yet, in a lot of entertainment industries, we want to pigeonhole and, and put people in boxes. And actually, you're, you're, there's no, it, it does them a disservice. Yeah. You don't hear, no one calls me a male comedian. So why do you call 
someone a female comedian. Like, it, it, to me, it doesn't make sense. But and I think Ian is talking about sort of along similar lines mm. in this episode. Um, or we should say, alongside many other things he talks about, it's a really fascinating episode. Yeah, yeah. A real sort of deep dive into the way he works and, it, and his brain. And then there's, there's some great advice at the end of it. Yeah, fantastic. And I mean, Ian's so great to talk to. And uh, yeah, and I loved the little quotes he told us um, that he got written next to his sort of writing desk, which helps him, you know, when he's in those sort of blank moments. Yes. And where he's like maybe feeling like uh, he's not sure what avenue to take with his writing um or plotting whatever he's you know when he's working on a novel so that was really great and uh yeah and we talked about all sorts of things i mean massively talked about music as well because he sings in a band although he wouldn't like me to call him refer to him as a singer he did say he was a vocalist as opposed to a singer front man um, a front man sorry yes um <laughs> and you know he's got so Your many vocalist. interests and we talked a lot of time off air about vinyl and um you know he's there's some really good vinyl shops in in edinburgh where near where he lives and yeah he's obviously got loads of interests he's really passionate about all those things and uh that really comes across and obviously we do talk a lot about writing as well and his processes and uh, hmm. and you know obviously dealing with lockdown and what, what he's been quite prolific during this time actually. really prolific yeah. yeah really prolific um and I, th- I think i think people have been i'd be interested to know actually from our listeners if anyone is is creative and has been hmm. has actually found lockdown has helped that'd be interesting yeah well, and, do tweet and, us and, and, and vice versa actually you found that it's been been difficult you know um i mean yeah. i was talking to an author friend of mine the other day and they said that they actually the initial part of lockdown they found very difficult to get sort of motivated into writing. So yeah, you know, can, I can believe can that. Yeah. Ways, can't it? Well, do get in contact with mm. us. Um, uh, you can tweet us at blank pod, and let just let us know we like hearing yeah, from our listeners. Do. And you can email us, and the email is let me get this right: the blank podcast twenty eighteen at gmail dot com. Perfect. Now do it. First time. <laughs> I've got some well, tweets. Speaking of, there we go. There we go. I know we've got some tweets. I, I set you up. You tap them yeah, in for yeah. your yard out. I'm like the um, Inzaghi, this relationship. <laughs> You're the Pippo Inzaghi? Yeah. Who am I then? Am I the, the Rui Costa? Oh, oh I'll take that. Well, I just think of your yeah, luscious I hair. Quite... <laughs> I don't have the beard quite, no. but I'm, I'm working on it. Perlo yeah. <laughs> and Inzaghi. Yes. Oh, that, is, that is a reference football, right up football, my street. <laughs> it's a football reference for non-football people. Yeah? Uh, um, brilliant. Yes, yeah, so I've, uh, I've got a tweet here from Jerry, and she's mm-hmm. at Awkward2010. She says, mm-hmm. just described and listened to the wonderfully interesting, caring, refreshing, compassionate and honest <gasps> podcast with Jenny Seagrove. Oh. A great insight into the world of acting, full of wisdom, gratefulness and very inspiring. Do take a listen. Blank pod. Lots more podcasts, too. So, yeah, that's really lovely. Thank you. And that was a great podcast with Jenny. Fan- fascinating podcast with Jenny. Really, really good one. And I'm really glad that, that that's resonated. Um such a nice tweet to receive. I've got one here from Lummock at Lummock, L-U-M-O-C-H. Have I said that right? Lummock. Yeah. I think so. And they said, um, I don't follow snooker and always thought Ronnie O'Sullivan a dark horse. No idea why. So hearing him chat away on Blank Pod was a revelation. Thoroughly nice blokes all round. Oh, we're included in that as well. And he's a runner. Everyone should check out this podcast. That's nice. You know, we've got an episode there that's that's smashing preconceptions. That's lovely. Yeah. And and I agree with Lummock. Ronnie O'Sullivan is an absolute legend. Yeah. One of the nicest guys. Yeah, around. amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a great chat with, with Ronnie. We felt very privileged to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Massively. Mm. Top top man. And anyway, look. Someone else we're also very privileged to have spoken to is Ian Ranking, this week's guest. Um, so let's crack on with this week's episode. It's the one and only Ian Ranking on the Blank Podcast. 
there's no preamble with us. We kind of just dive in. <laughs> We've kind of already been talking. It's funny, actually, just saying just saying that about, you You know, you were saying about your archive going to, um, in Edinburgh, going to the, was it National Library, you said? Yeah. And you were saying about floppy disks. What were the first things you were writing on? Because we did sort of air on, like, typewriters. Was was typewriters or did you write... Did you write with a pencil? Careful, Giles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Or was it a quill? Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, slate board and chalk <laughs> is what it was, yeah. Um, no, I mean, the first thing, when I started writing, I was in my early teens, so it would be around about 1973, 74, before you guys were alive, and uh, it was stolen school jotters. Oh, okay. So I would, you know, the kind of line jotters that you got for doing your schoolwork in, I would nick those from the English class and I would write stories in them. Um, and as soon as I could, I got a typewriter. I got a little portable typewriter that I got from my sister's mail order catalogue, John Moore's catalogue or Littlewood's catalogue. And I was supposed to pay her back, you know, 50 pence a week or something. Um, whether I ever did or not, I can't remember. Yeah. No, uh, and then I moved from that to an electric typewriter, an electric oh, portable yeah. typewriter. It wasn't terribly portable. <laughs> Um, they were huge. I think but, we had one. Uh, huge and clunky, yeah. noisy, so noisy. And I kind of worked my way up from the electric typewriter to a very basic Amstrad word processor with a daisy wheel printer that, again, was so noisy, I had to put a cardboard box over it when I was printing off my novels <laughs> so the neighbours didn't complain. I mean, it was, like a, it was like a train, this thing. <laughs> Jeez, oh. Um, and, then, and then from that, you know, I've gone to laptops and stuff. So... My handwriting now is appalling. I can only write in capital letters because otherwise nobody can read anything. I, I write some I notes same. this I exactly my same. writing is awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, are you the same, Jim? You got I do, I do um, capital letters as well. And I subscribe to a theory that I've made up and told myself that the more creative you are, the worse your handwriting is. And that's just to make up for the fact that I've got bad handwriting. But I like to believe it. You know, it could be true. <laughs> yeah. Well, they said recently, they said that very creative people make lots of mistakes when they're typing because their brain is going faster than it can get the words down on the... And, and I went, yes, thank God that you've come up with this theory. I do theory. that, yeah. Yeah. It's because we're really intelligent people. Oh, That's okay. why we make so many spelling mistakes. <laughs> That's why we have editors, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but that's, interesting. Were you, well, that's interesting, though, because I was thinking, like, sometimes when people ask me how I write, like how I do my writing and I say I do it on a computer there's a sort of almost like oh like a kind of oh you do it like that do you like I like I'm not pu- like I'm not a purist because I don't like sit in a cafe and write it on on paper and with a pencil no you're you're, you're supposed to lie on a shea long <laughs> yeah. with your amanuensis alongside you like Barbara Carlin yeah. styley and you just you recite the words from you know from your head and then the amanuensis yeah. writes it all down that while dropping grapes into your <laughs> yeah. mouth I mean, that's the, that's the dream. We can only yeah, dream of yeah. these things. Uh, but I, I find, I mean, although I, you know, everything goes straight into the computer from the word go, um, notes and everything for books. But when it comes to reading what I've written, I much prefer to print it out and actually read a printed page because I see mistakes and I see repetition. I'm very bad for repeating a word three times in three lines, you know. And I'll see that on a piece of paper and I just won't see it on the screen. I've got this kind of blind spot. Um, and also printing it out means that my wife can then go through yeah. it, which she does. She's my first reader. Writing in the margins, scribbling furiously in the margins, making me very <laughs> nervous. What has, she, what has she found that's wrong with this book that she doesn't like <laughs> about this book? 
Um, and then I have to get that manuscript back from her. I, I still like that process. I just yesterday I sent a manuscript off to my um, agent and, you know, all I did was press a few keys on the computer mm. and off it winged its way. And, you know, the old days, uh, when my first books were published, I'd have to actually go to the university library and pay to photocopy them sheet by sheet, then put all of that in a big padded bag and queue up at the post office and send it off to mm. the publisher. And that, you, you felt, oh, I've done the work. Yeah. I have done the work. Now you press a few keys, a full-length novel flies through the ether, and you think, really? Is that it? Yeah. Is that all there is, in the, the words of the, of the great <laughs> yeah, song? Yeah, it does. It feels slightly cheap, like you're cheating a little bit. Or it does, I don't, like you say, I think I'm the same, actually. I, I always print off manuscripts to go through because, like you, I, I just find that you can embrace it more when it's, when it's actually there. Physical. Well, it's more like a physical yeah, book, physical, right? Yeah. It's more like a physical book when you hold it, when you pick it up, when you look at the, the page and you can see the, 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 the way the paragraphs are structured and everything um, in a way that I just don't do. And I get tired very quickly on a screen. The one thing I've noticed about all these Zoom things that people are having to do or were having to do during the lockdown, Zoom book festivals and Zoom interviews for, for my new book coming out, I get exhausted. Yeah. And an hour of Zoom and I'm completely yeah. gone. Uh, and how people are doing it. I mean, I know some editors and agents are doing four or five of these a day. Yeah. I don't know how they manage it. I find this all, I find on-screen stuff, the on-screen world is very fatiguing. Mm. It's, a, it's a weird level of concentration. It's almost that you have to concentrate more than I think if you were in a meeting or meeting someone in a coffee shop. But this is, this is the way of the world. Now, I actually think post-lockdown, people were doing more of this. So I think this is just the way we're yeah. going to go. And that... Um, the idea of like sending off work in a split second is really interesting. Giles and I, I guess we can mention this now because by the time this yeah, comes yeah, out, this will, it, yeah. we can mention it finally. Giles and I have written a book off the back of this podcast, off the back of blank, and it was my first ever time being involved in that kind of process at all. So it's fascinating. But I do remember when we'd sort of had the, the first edit and the second edits and all that, and sort of like sending off my email thinking, oh, yeah, is that, is that it? Like, is that... It was a weird <laughs> feeling. I think I thought it would, I'd be more like... I don't know, this huge, overwhelming, celebratory also, feeling. And I was like, oh, it's like you said, Ian, just clicking a button. It was weird. And also you think, sorry, Jim, I was going to say also, have I sent the right version? Have I sent version oh, point one or version I've got point hundreds six, of versions. which is the one I meant yes, to send? I've got hundreds <laughs> of versions on my laptop. So, yeah, that's for someone that, that likes organised things, it's an absolute mess. But... Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with all of that. I think it's, you know, it's, it, I used to send my, my, my novels to my agent if I was doing it, you know, electronically. I would send them an email with an attachment and each chapter would be in a separate <laughs> attachment. So he'd get like 60 <laughs> emails, each one with a chapter. Because I was always afraid that if I sent all the chapters in one email, it would, it would just disappear mm. into the ether. Or not all of them would arrive, and he would be reading the book, thinking this is a bit convoluted for Ian. It's a, it's a, he's making the reader do an awful lot of work here. <laughs> to, to go back to Zoom, though, the, the one thing—I mean, I think the publishing industry in particular was very agile and adept when the lockdown came, and we suddenly found ways to get our stuff out there, um, get our wares out there, and let people know that we were still around. Um, you know, marketing and stuff, and doing online book festivals, and the various online book festivals I've done. The people who run them have said, even when they go back, if they go back to having a physical book festival, they will still have an online element to it because it is incredibly egalitarian. Mm. To come to the Edinburgh Book Festival, uh, you've got to get on a train or a plane or in a car. Uh, you've got to maybe get a hotel for the night or an Airbnb or something. If you're going as a 
uh, as a member of the public, you've got to pay 10 or 15 quid to see the event, etc., etc. With an online book festival, you can sit in your jammies in your bed and just click on the link and there you are. Um, so they had people, the Edinburgh Book Festival this year, which was online, and they actually spent a lot of money making it good. They got a lot, of, they, they actually got some sponsorship, so they were able to do it for free. Um, right, yeah. But they got people from all yeah, over the world. Yeah. They got people. They got people watching from all over the world, and they got authors participating who they might have found it difficult yeah. to get to come to Edinburgh for yeah. one event. You know, from the other side of the world, for example. So I think it, you know, I think that proved the merit of the online festival. The the only thing is the only two snags. At some point, you've got yeah. to monetize yeah. it. I mean, you've got to find a way of getting people to persuade people to pay for the privilege. Um, another thing is the authors aren't getting an awful lot out of it because we've not got the queue of people at the yes, end exactly. getting their books signed. Um, and those are very difficult nuts to crack, I think. But if we can crack those nuts, then we've got something for the future. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering, actually, if you did, if they did, I mean, some events do this, you know, the physical events do this where you pre you pre-order a book and you get your ticket kind of thing. So maybe there's some way of they could monetize that so at least the author gets a, a book sale. But you're not getting that interaction. Are you missing that, mm. like going and meeting people? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm hugely missing um, that kind of one-on-one. Somebody telling you what they like about your books, what they don't like, giving you ideas, inspiration for other stories. People saying, "Hey, if you're in town for for an evening, go to this pub, go to this restaurant. Here's a play. You know, this band are playing in town tonight. Um, all that local info and getting to know a place. Yeah, I miss that a lot. I don't miss the travel. No. You know, uh, there's one of these things, you know, as on a book tour, I mean, you know, basically writers have become Jekyll and Hyde characters. We, we're the, we're the, the weird kids at school who prefer to sit in their bedrooms, listen to prog rock <laughs> yeah. and write love poetry, you know, to, to people who couldn't speak to in the playground, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, and uh, that's who we, we are. But then you've got to, so you're that kind of loner who sits quite happily in a room on your own with inside your own head, transmitting thoughts onto paper and ideas and being creative. Then you've got to become a traveling salesperson and you've got to go out there and be outgoing and gregarious yeah. and funny and telling anecdotes in front of a room of strangers every night in a different city every night. Um, and it can get, that can get really exhausting. And, um, uh, you know, and especially America, when I tour America, it's usually like 15 cities in 15 wow, wow. days. So, you know, a lot of early checkouts from hotels, a lot of cabs to airports, a lot of time in airports. Um, and in one or two bookshops uh, and maybe a quick burger in a pub somewhere and then off to the next one. That I find as I get older, I mean, at first that was fantastic, uh, really exciting. And now as I get older, I'd rather be at home um, in my carpet slippers with my amanuensis. <laughs> Gotta love those grapes. I think that's... Um, yeah. <laughs> Once they've been pressed... Of course, of course. Knowing the finest, obviously they're from Waitrose or something. Um, I think that's a good description of creative people in general. I think like if we, we get people to listen to this podcast who are creative in various kind of ways and industries and stuff. And I think if anyone was asking me, what if, you know, what's being a creative like, you are half the time a salesperson you're having to sell your wares the whole time and the most successful creative people i found in my industry are the ones that are relentless with that and they're constantly put, i find that really mm. difficult I've, I've, i almost find it a bit sort of self um what's the word i'm looking for that that aggrandizing yes, uh, that self-promotion i find really awkward but you kind mm. of have to be well, you've, I mean, if it, you know the, the way that the publishing industry has changed now, and the way that getting published has changed, which means that you can do it online. You can just you can 
with no editor, no publisher, no marketing, no nothing, you can get your stuff out there as eBooks on Amazon and you can, you can make a good living at it if you know what you're doing, but you will have to spend more time marketing yourself than you do actually writing. Mm. Uh, and I, th- I find that a- a problematic, that, that people are having to spend so much time selling their wares that they're not actually getting the freedom they need to write the next great thing they mm. could be writing. But yeah, I mean, it's just the way things are going with publishing these days. And, and, and it, it's opened up pub- publishing. It's opened up being a writer to groups who wouldn't have thought able to do it in the past because they didn't have access to the grand publishing houses of London, for example. I mean, when I started in this business... Um, I just sent stuff off on spec and I got back loads of rejection letters. And I was sitting in Edinburgh, a student, sending stuff off to London, to willy-nilly to anybody I could think of. Um, and then when my first book was published, it was actually published by a very small independent press in Edinburgh. And that was my calling card to London was the fact that I'd already had a book published. So an agent came looking and then the agent went to London with the next book. Um, and that was, the, that was the kind of route I took. But these days you can bypass all of that. And you can start your life as an online writer. And if you're selling enough of your books on Amazon, you better believe uh, the proper the proper paper publishers, the big players, are going to come mm. looking for you. So true. So true. Now, Ian, you you grew up in Fife. Yeah. You know where that yeah. is? Scotland. <laughs> Just about. I think I do. Anyway, I've been to. I have been to Scotland a few times. This, this well, it's um, Fife. Fife is a, Fife is a county, an area, a region north of Edinburgh, between Edinburgh and Dundee, and it's shaped like a little Scotty dog's head. Uh, if you look it. on a map, and it's um, they've got a saying: you need a lang spoon to sup with a fifer. I mean, you need a, you need a long spoon if you want to eat with a fifer because we're very close knit. We're almost oh, like a tribe. Excellent. And where I grew up was very much like a tribe. It was a coal mining village. Most of my uncles were coal miners. My dad wasn't. Um, he was the youngest of five boys, I think, and he was the only one who didn't go down the mines. He worked in a grocer shop instead. But yeah, it was all council housing. Everybody knew everybody else. I had an uncle and aunt over the back fence, an uncle and aunt two doors away, various cousins spread around the place. It was a clan. It was a tribe. Um, it, was a, it was an odd upbringing if you felt different. So the fact that I was writing, reading, scribbling poems and song lyrics and things from a young age, I basically hid that from friends and family alike. I didn't want anybody to know that I was the weird one. So I did a very good impersonation of just a local thug, you know, because this was the time of skinheads, sweatheads, Doc Martens, um, all that jazz, and gangs. And so I would hang around the street corner of this little village, scowling at passing (laughs) cars. Uh, but then if a battle was ever going to take place between us and the next village over, which was called Loch Gelly, they had a much better gang than ours with a much better name. They were the YLM, the Young Loch Gelly Mental. <laughs> and if we were going to have a pitch battle with them, I would scurry back to my bedroom and write about it. I wouldn't participate. I would imagine what it would have been like to be there. So I was a coward at so what was your Was what that was prevalent your around that? What was your gang called? Sorry, sorry, Jim. Uh, that was, well, uh, uh, YCD, Young Card and Den. YCD is rubbish, isn't yeah. it? Um, while I'm even had a really good, I could draw it for you a little kind of big line, and the L uh, comes out one side, and the M comes out the other side. You know, they're a kind of proper tag <laughs> that they used. Um, but you know, it was. But yeah, I mean, it was a kind of. It was all everybody trying to be tough and everything. I was at the junior high, so the my primary school fed into this junior high, and then you were siphoned off if you were brainy in any way, shape, or form. And at the end of second year, so when you were fourteen, you were given the option to go into the big school, the senior high. Because the junior high dumped you out onto the streets at 16, 
senior high, you stayed until 18, and that meant you might progress to college or university. And I remember it well, because you were taken one by one to the headmaster's office, who then said, you know, well, your, your results are good enough that you can go to the senior high, which was five miles away. It was a bus okay, journey, yeah. and you had to wear a uniform and stuff. So a friend of mine who was cleverer than me in every single subject except English um, said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to leave all my friends behind. I don't want to get up half an hour earlier. I don't want to wear a uniform. I don't want to get a bus to school. And he stuck, he stayed in the junior high, left school at 16. And that moment with no input from family or friends, just him in a room at 14, that decided his whole future. Yeah. Or it could have. I mean, it could have decided his whole future, that one moment in time. I just thought it stuck with me ever since that he decided to stay and leave school at 16. Yeah. That is a... Whereas I got on the bus. You got, you got, I got on the bus. bus. Yeah. And suddenly I was surrounded by people who lived in private houses. Their, their, their parents owned their homes. It was extraordinary. And, um, and they could afford all the prog rock albums <laughs> yeah. in the world. Was that <laughs> difficult from... What were your family wanting you to go into, though? I mean, they, I assume it wasn't. I'm well, assuming from I your had, tone that it wasn't writing. Yeah. <laughs> I had one uncle who lived in Bradford in Yorkshire, and he was a successful accountant insofar as he owned his own home and he owned a nice car. So I got the idea and my parents got the idea that I was going to become an accountant. And so up to the age of 17... That's what I was going to do. I was going to go to university and study accountancy and economics. And then I had an epiphany. I was staying with my big sister. She lived on an RAF base in England, and I was there for the summer. And so I phoned home to get my uh, results from my hires, which are like mm. A-levels in Scotland. And I'd only got a C for economics. And I thought, yeah, I don't like economics. I'm not very good at economics. Why the hell am I going to uni to study a subject I don't like just so I can get a job at the end of it? So by the time I got back to, to Carden Down, I said to my parents, look, I want to study English. I want to study literature. I love reading books and I want to continue to do that. And they went, what kind of job will you get with that? <laughs> and I said, I'll come back to Fife and I'll teach. I'll be a teacher. All the teachers in my high school were local people who'd gone off to college, uni, teacher training college and then come back again. I just thought that's what I'll do. So I went off to do English um, as, as a huge disappointment <laughs> to my family. My parents who were hoping that I would get a career that would keep them in a lifestyle that they would become com comfortable with, you know? It's funny, isn't it, how we the, the perceptions that our, our parents have for what we should do. <laughs> uh, I know. Well, of course, I came out, you know, when I came out of uni, I wasn't making any money from my books. Yeah. Um, by the time I came out of uni, and I, you know, I worked in various jobs. I worked. I moved to London eventually because my wife. We got married July '86 and moved to London August '86, and she worked in the civil service in London. So we had a flat in Tottenham. That was all we could afford. We went up and down the um, Victoria Line because she worked in Victoria, uh, and so we went up and down the Victoria Line and literally the third last stop, yeah. Tottenham Hale. We could afford to buy a two-bedroom flat in Tottenham Hale. Uh, so one bedroom was our bedroom, one bedroom became my office. Uh, and that was it. And then that was us. We were in London for four years and we bloody hated it. <laughs> yeah. Hated it. And actually, I was, uh, it's a tough place to live if you've yes. not got any money. I, agree, I was going to yeah. say, what a, what a contrast from, from where you're from as well, you know, from a very tight knit yeah. community and then going into like, yeah, this big city, which is, I find I know. London chaotic and mad and quite pleased when I have to go home when I visit. Well, the other thing is that I, I, I got a, I got, um, uh, a job that was actually local. It was in Tottenham. It was at um, what was called Middlesex Polytechnic. And I was working as a secretary in the National Folktale Centre. We were collecting 
oral tradition folk tales. It was fascinating stuff. And in the evenings, if I stayed late, I could use the computer because at this point I didn't have a computer at home. Um, so I could write me stories on a computer and save them to a floppy disk. Um, and yeah, and then after a couple of years of that, I got a job on a hi-fi magazine. But the hi-fi magazine was in Crystal Palace, which is a 90-minute yeah. journey from Tottenham. So I was traveling three hours a day, 90 minutes there and 90 minutes back to do this job. It was just insane. And so we were getting burnt out very quickly. Uh, and eventually my wife said, we've got to get out of this place. And she persuaded me that what would be perfect for us would be a ramshackle farmhouse in southwest France. I spoke no French whatsoever. Uh, and suddenly I was the breadwinner because we left two jobs and went to live in rural France in this ramshackle farmhouse. Where, you know, we tried rewiring it because it needed rewiring, but we weren't very successful, which meant every time you opened the fridge, you got an electric shock <laughs> oh and didn't God. wear oven gloves. So you had to wear oven gloves to open the fridge. That's, that's, the, that's the level of competence that we're talking about here. Uh, I nearly died many times in that house, you know, being up the top of a ladder, trying to fix a, a, a shutter on a window and Whoa. nearly falling off the ladder 30 feet to my doom. Um, Cutting through a, a, a cable with an electric chainsaw. You name wow. it, I did it, man. Yeah. Uh, I, God knows why I'm still here. <laughs> wow, what a, what a contrast. Like, Sorry, John. What, what a contrast. No, no, I was, was going to say, it sounds like you're, you guys are risk takers, though. You, yeah. know, you, you know, you decided to get... <laughs> no. No, you don't feel so? No, my wife, my wife, my wife is, has always been okay. a risk taker, man. Always, always. Uh, even now, she's the risk taker. Um, I'd be very comfortable with, the, you know, you could put me in a prison cell. And I'd be pretty happy, as long as I had some music and some books. Um, Travelling and stuff like that, adventures. She made me, every adventure I've ever had, I think I've had because Miranda made me do it, you know. I mean, the reason we ended up in France was that just after we left university in 82, um, she went and worked in a vineyard in France and she cajoled me to go over there to work on the vineyard beside her. And then we spent six months and part of it was hitchhiking around France and Italy. I would never have done any of that. I would never have done any. I would have been sitting in, in, in Edinburgh, drinking in the same old pubs <laughs> that I've always drank in and listening to the same old records I'd always listened to and reading the same books. Well, my, my wife is also called Miranda. And when we go on holiday, she's also the one that seeks out the adventures. So I don't know if it's just a Miranda thing, maybe, that they're just... Maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe it's a Miranda thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, crazy. Yeah, I was going to say, but, but the writing, because obviously you, you, you alluded to the fact that you were thinking about becoming a teacher. But So when did you start to sort of have a bit more confidence in maybe doing writing as a career? Well, I, you know, I mean, the first two or three Rebus novels were published, or the first two or three novels that I wrote were published when I was, uh, first one was published just before I left uni. I mean, I did a PhD, so I was at uni for seven years in total, um, four years undergraduate, three years postgraduate, and then he had to drag me kicking and screaming from the library. Um, uh, in London, when we were living there, I published the next two or three books. Then we went to France and suddenly I was the breadwinner and I was a full-time writer for the first time. And I was writing two books a year just to try and put enough mm. food on the table. Soon after we got to um, France, kids came along. We had, we had two children, both born in France. And that's when I started to really have panic attacks because the books weren't doing good business at all. Um, my publisher was always on the verge of dropping me because I wasn't making them enough money. Uh, and I became what's called mid-list. Mid-list is where you're ticking along, but you're not exciting anybody. Um, so people, so the publisher starts to lose interest in you a little bit. Um, 
And then Black and Blue came along, which was written in France and was a big meaty book. It's like all the previous books had been an apprenticeship leading up to that one. And it won the Gold Dagger for the best crime novel of the year, etc., etc. And so the book after that, the publisher actually had regained some interest in me and decided to put some marketing muscle in, take out adverts in newspapers and stuff and do a proper tour. And that book did better. And then the book after that got into the top 10. So, I mean, it was it was probably my... 12th or 13th published novel before I was making the top 10 in the UK. Uh, it was longer than that in other territories. Mm. So it was a very slow progress. I mean, I'm kind of glad in a way it was slow because when it, when success came, I embraced yeah. it. I, mm. I didn't go mad. If I had if the first novel yeah. had been a huge hit, it would be champagne-filled <laughs> baths and You'd be on that chaise long, pinball <laughs> machines. So yeah. many grapes. Yeah, gold-plated pinball machines. I'd be getting up from my chaise long to play pinball with my amateur race, you know. And, um, yeah, uh, all of that jazz. But it came slowly, and by the time it came along, I was in my 40s. By the time financial security mm. came along, I was in my, you know, I haven't had my first novel published at 26, 25, 26. Um, it, it was, I was 40 before financial security came. Uh, but, you know, it was, thank God it did, because this is the only thing I've ever really wanted to mm. do. And I find it therapeutic, mm. I find it cathartic, I find it good fun. It's basically me being a kid again, playing with my imaginary friends. And it's one thing I've always said, blithely, I've always said when I do talks, all children have an inner creative life that then the adult world eventually yeah. knocks out mm. of them. And we're not allowed to be children anymore at a certain point in our lives. Uh, and I said that at a gig in London a while back, and a friend of mine who's a comedian was in the audience with his wife, and she teaches in a pretty rough school in London, went for a drink afterwards, and she said, that's just not true anymore, Ian. She said, the children I teach have no inner creative life. They, 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 they can't imagine things. They, can't, they, they don't, you know, fantasise about situations and characters and stuff like that. It's all handed to them on a screen. And I went to a primary school in Edinburgh a few months after that and actually saw that in action, oh, wow. you know. Um, trying to do a bit of creative writing with kids and finding that they were very resistant to the idea or their brains just couldn't cope with it. Yeah, I mean, I do a lot of um, school visits because I do, I, you know, I write a few children's books and um, yeah. yeah, it's very apparent. Really? And when you try and do a creative writing activity with them, they often go to their go-to. So it could be like, you know, they won't come up with their own ideas. It will be something that they've already seen, you know, like uh, Marvel mm. heroes or whatever it might be. And uh, they find it very difficult to have their own ideas about things and i don't know if that's you know obviously screens are to blame to a certain extent probably the also our education system we don't nurture the arts um, as much as we yeah. probably should um yeah. so i think there's there's combination of those things you know and i think there's, there's something there's something else i was on a literacy commission a while ago in scotland and one of the things we we flagged up was that comics i mean you just mentioned it comic yeah. book heroes i mean comics used to be affordable literacy for kids you know there were a few mm. pennies and for a few pennies you'd be reading a story and it would keep you occupied for a while um and you could swap them with your friends and stuff like that i used to i mean we didn't have many books in the house my neither of my parents was a reader um but i was allowed to indulge my my uh, hunger for comics uh it was you know and i would get seven or eight comics a week there was no bookshop in the village, but there was a newsagent that sold comics. Yeah. And it was the Dandy and the Beano and the Victor and the Hotspur. It was all these DC Thompson comics that were being churned out from Dundee. Um, and then later on, things like 2000 AD. And I'm still a huge fan of comic books. I think it's a really, it's a gateway drug mm. to novels in a way. 
Um, and it's just a gateway drug to storytelling per se. And if you look in, if you look around news agents now in supermarkets, the range of comics available is much slimmer than it used to be, and they've gone up wildly in price. So they're not nearly as affordable as they used to be, and there's not as many of them. So out yeah. Sorry, Giles. So um, as as I've got a one-year-old daughter and, and me and my wife are both creative people and I'd love her to be creative, is there something then that parents who are creative or want their children to be creative can do then? Because that, that really worries me that kids are growing up without that sort of creative thing. Well, again, on this literacy commission, we, 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 we flagged up, you know, what you really want is a household where the kids are seeing books and magazines and newspapers around the place. They're seeing their parents reading. Mm-hmm. Seeing your parents reading gets you used to the idea of reading and you'll pick up the stuff your parents are looking at and you'll look at it as well. Um, so just be careful which books you're reading. Um, and also reading bedtime stories. Um, you know, having lots of stories available to the kids, getting them used to bookshops early on. I know adults who are terrified at the thought of going into a bookshop. They find it a really imposing, oh. scary place. They're not maybe the most literate people and they think everybody inside that bookshop is really clever and will look down their noses at them. Trying to persuade people into bookshops, getting them in from an early age is a big deal. Reading to your kids at night in bed is a big deal. Um, and just having books around the place so they get used to the notion that books and so are So maybe thing. looking at books rather than looking at my phone in front of her. Probably a good idea. Yeah. yeah. Another thing that I've noticed as well, and it's something I do, is that I've stopped allowing myself to be bored. So... Like even mm-hmm. like the other day, I was I think I've said this before, queuing up in the post office, and I'm um, thinking, oh, I've got to queue for a minute and get my phone out. Whereas before, yeah. I would have just been looking around, mm-hmm. taking in stuff. Look, oh, what's that person doing? Oh, what you know, what's their life? Oh, people watching and like listening to conversations, and you know, and and that used to be you know would you know trigger my yeah. imagination completely. Whereas we just don't allow ourselves to do that very often now. No, I mean, you see people walking around or sitting in cafes, they've got their screen out, they've got their headphones in. They are not participating in the world as we know it. Um, And they're missing out on quite a lot. They're missing out on an awful lot that's going on around them. And they're becoming very insular. They're becoming insulated and insular. And I do worry about that, that we're, you know, we're, we're turning into a society that isn't a society anymore. It's, it's just individual people in their own little bubbles, um, looking at and talking to other people who are also in little bubbles at a distance on a screen or whatever. Um, and I think something's going to be lost. I don't know quite what yet because we're still, this is still in its infancy. This new way of living is still in its infancy. But we're going to lose a lot of skills. We're going to lo- lose a lot of social skills. People aren't going to, they're going to feel awkward trying to socialise with people in public and, you know, meeting strangers mm-hmm. in the real world. How do you communicate with them? Going to a job interview when you're not used yeah. to talking to people. Um, all that kind of stuff, I think, will be, is being lost. Um but maybe that's been a bit negative. I mean, the online world has brought an awful lot of positives, you know. I mean, it's opened up the world to a lot of people. It's opened up a much wider world to a lot of people than would have been available to mm. them otherwise. Um, and you can communicate with anybody around the world. And the whole world now is your oyster, uh, in a sense, in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So, <sighs> swings and roundabouts, yeah. as we I say. I suppose it's finding yeah. that balance, isn't it, of things, with, with everything, you know, everything in moderation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's, heart- it's been heartening to me to see that during and after lockdown, book sales, physical book sales, not e-books, I mean, e-books yeah. went up during lockdown. E- e-book sales went hugely up during lockdown in general because that was all people mm-hmm. could get. 
they couldn't get into a bookstore or a library. Um, but since lockdown ended and bookstores have, have opened, reopened, um, people are buying physical books. It's it's like, I think several things have happened. One, yeah. they want that physicality. They want that tactile sense of holding something, having something physical, um, because they've got a bit bored of the online world that they had during mm. lockdown. But the other thing is they want their bookstores to, mm. to, to survive. Um, they really do. And so during lockdown, the wee indies that I know, the wee independent booksellers, did their best. I mean, they were cycling around Edinburgh, dropping books off. If you if you phoned them up and ordered a book and paid for it with your credit wow. card, they would cycle the book to you and leave it at your door and phone you and say it's there. Um, they were adjusting very quickly to the new world. And uh, and it was glorious to see people actually supporting their local stores. And we just saw it recently. There was a thing, you might have seen it online, guys. The Strand Bookstore, which is a huge bookstore in New York, it's mostly second-hand books. They were struggling financially. And suddenly 20-odd thousand people who use that bookstore started you know going in and buying books and giving them money and setting up a fund and everything just to keep it going to keep it alive yeah we say they say vital those you know like secondhand bookshops as well i mean they they, you know it's always a struggle and um i think yeah it's it's great that people are are um coming out to support those kind of organizations and stuff because i think you know it's really important Jim, it's us again, and uh, we've got some big news. We have indeed. Uh, Giles, I can't believe I'm saying this. We've written a book, a book about blank moments based on this very podcast. Yeah, we've been recording this podcast for a while now, and as we've been doing, we've realised that everyone has these difficult blank moments. All our wonderful guests that we have on the podcast and our listeners get in touch with us all the time to tell us about their own situations, their own experiences of blank moments. And sometimes that can be from a personal life, from their career, the relationships they're in, or maybe it's a public situation. Yeah, I mean, it really, it's one of those terms that can be applied to anything. Social anxiety, imposter syndrome, just sort of generally being off form, having an identity crisis. I mean, it's all part of the human condition. And yet we all get thrown off from time to time and sort of made to feel a bit helpless yeah so the book is made up of all these different chapters that sort of concentrate on these various themes that come up in the pod so whether it's uh, public failure social anxiety fear mental health grief all the things that our amazing guests have talked about on the podcast yeah i mean and those guests include louis theroux david harbour reggie hunter dawn french rachel paris amanda abington john ronson rufus sewell gary lineker all these people that really opened up to us about these difficult moments and what we've done is we've dived into them um explained how we relate to them talked a little bit about our own experiences and almost gone on a journey of this discovering blank moments and how they've helped us and we hopefully we take the reader on a journey with us yeah, there's loads of stuff in there for everybody, I think. It's a bit memoir, it's a bit self-help, and there's lots of interactive bits in there as well, so you can do your own gratitude list, and there's tips on uh, if you're having sleeping problems. So all different things that you can take out of the book. And where can people get hold of this book, Jim? Well, so it comes out in March in 2021, but it's available to pre-order right now from Amazon, waterstones.com, and hive.co.uk. Yeah, it's, I'm really looking forward to everyone getting their hands on it. And uh, hopefully lots of people will be able to identify their own blank moments. And you never know what you might find out. Um, from, from a writing process point of view, has your process over the years changed much? Or I mean, obviously, we've talked about the technology side of it, but... Mm. 
the actual mm. writing process um, from start to finish? No, it hasn't. I mean, no, I don't think it has changed that much. I mean, I, I'm very linear. You know, I start at chapter one and go through to the end. I write whodunits, basically, and people think you must know the ending before you start, and I never, ever do. I never know who the killer is or what's going on until I get there. So I'm a pantser. I fly by the seat of my pants. You get planners and pantsers, and I'm very much in the latter category, and a lot of crime writers are. I think people who, who don't write or read crime fiction are surprised mm. at that often, that we just make up as we go. When I start a book, I know as little as my main character. I know as little as my detectives. And during the course of the first draft, I start to work out what the heck is going on. Um, I'm only finding it out as they find it out. And... Uh, so that that structure thing is, is hasn't really changed for me. It works for me. The thing is, I don't think it would work for everybody. I think maybe it would only work for a few people. And what works for you, you'll find what works for you, and that's what you stick with. Um, but and it, it, there was one time, a long time ago, I did plan a book out in great detail. And because I planned it in great detail, I didn't feel the need to write it. Mm. Because, because yeah. I knew everything that was going to happen in the book, I didn't need to write the story. So it's almost better for me not to know what's going to happen and find it out as I go. And then the second draft, first draft is kind of clunky and then the second draft tidies everything up and then my wife sees it and she makes her comments in the margins and then the third draft is what the publisher usually gets and then they'll ask me to change it and I'll say, no, I think you'll find by now this book is there, it's ready. You're making it a different book, not necessarily a better book. And that's always a fight I've got with my editor. It's whether it's a better book or just a different book, uh, the things he wants me to change to it. So there's all of that going on. And, you know, as even as a very successful writer, you still get editorial input. You know, my agent will maybe say, can you tweak this? My editor might say, can you tweak that? My American editor might say, look, can we just change this? Because an American audience might have trouble with this um, local parlance or something or some nuance, yeah. some local cultural issue. Uh, all of that. But the during lockdown, man, it's been great. I've written two books this year. Wow. I mean, the latest Amazing. Rebus, which is out now, was written pretty much all during lockdown. I started, well, I started it in November. Um, got the first draft done just before lockdown, but the second draft, third draft, and the edits were done all during lockdown. And then after that, I sat down and wrote another short novel. So it's under 200 pages, but it is, it is to me a novel. And um, about 70 odd thousand words, I think. Um, I don't do a word count, I do a page count. Um, that gives me an idea what it's going to look like when it's, fin when it's finished, how, how fat <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, yeah. The other thing I've noticed is that my books are getting thinner. I mean, when I was working on a typewriter, my books were quite slim. Then when computers came in, ta-da, crime fiction books started to expand <laughs> yeah. to fill the known universe, you know? I mean, the latest J.K. Rowling crime novel is 900 pages. It's insane. That, yeah. It's insane. It's insane. Um, as I'm getting older, my books are getting shorter. I went up to, I got up to four or 500 pages when I was young and full of vim and vigor, but now I'm old and decrepit. I'm getting them down to about 300. Because um, I'm always afraid I'm going to I'm going to peg it before I finish writing the book, you know. So um, my wife my wife's always reassured when I get to a certain stage in the first draft where if I drop dead, she can still get someone to finish the book for me. She uh, she's always really reassured when I get up to around about a 200 page mark. She goes, can yeah, you can drop dead. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, somebody else can wrap it up. <laughs> it's interesting you're saying about the editorial process because I I might have misremembered this, but I remember watching uh, a documentary, an Imagine documentary, with you. Um, and you, there's a bit where you'd sent off your third draft to your um, editor of the time, and it come back with quite a few notes. And I remember you <laughs> looking quite demoralised, and and, and yeah. I think you said something like, uh, "I've been doing this twenty years, and I still can't get it right." <laughs> and it really stuck with me because it, I, I, whenever I get editorial notes, I always feel like, "Oh, I'm really shit at writing. I'm obviously really shit." <laughs> You know, and it's just that horrible, like, and then the imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff kicks in. And yeah, it was really reassuring. I've got, in some I've ways. got three, 
I've got just up next to my computer here. I've got some little notes that I've scribbled, little quotes that keep me going. Uh, one of them: "Doubt is your friend when you're writing a novel." A guy called Anthony Giardina. I don't know who he is, but my favourite one is uh, Iris Murdoch, uh, and she said, uh, ev "Every novel is the wreck of a perfect idea." Oh, yeah, amazing. yeah. You know, because when you get the idea for the story, the book, it's crystalline, it's perfect. You know exactly what you want to say. You know exactly how the story should come out. When you start to write, words are very shifty little things. And suddenly you find that you're not quite saying the, the way you wanted to say it, or you're not quite saying the thing you wanted to say. And readers don't quite get the message you thought you were trying to get across in that story. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm in awe of poets. You know, I mean, your latest book is basically a, a novel-length poem, isn't it, really? And um, I'm in awe of poets who can say in a line, a phrase, a couple of words, what it takes me 300 pages to say. Mm. You know, I think it's a phenomenal... I mean, so why am I, I've got behind me, you can probably see, a, I've got a picture of it when you can't see you're listening, but I've got a big framed picture of Muriel Spark. I did my PhD thesis on Muriel Spark. Muriel Spark, fantastic Edinburgh novelist. Her novels were incredibly short, 100 pages, yes. you know? Um, but she was a poet. She started her life as a poet. And on her gravestone, it just says Muriel Spark, poet. Yeah. That's what yeah. she wanted. Um, and that that concision of a poet, she brings that to her novels. So they are these beautiful, perfect jewels <laughs> that I can only dream of writing, you know. Whenever I look at a book, as soon as I finish it, I go, nah, it's not quite, it's not quite there. It's the wreck of mm -hmm. a perfect idea. That's such a beautiful phrase, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's that's beautifully I, I put. I love that. I absolutely. Love and that. doubt is your friend as well. It's true, I think, because we all we all have it. But I think that doubt maybe forces you <clears> to look at things slightly differently, or make a few edits, and keeps you going. Yeah, well, someday I forget which one of you said used the word uh, phrase imposter syndrome. I mean, that's something yeah. all authors have got. I think we're always wondering when are we going to be found yeah. out. You know, when when are the audience going to twig that we're not as good as they th thought we were? Uh, and you're only as good as your last book, you know, really. And you think you're only as good as your next, you hope your next book's going to be the one, you know, the perfect novel. Um, but maybe the perfect novel, maybe it's just a kind of chimera. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't mm. exist. I can think of several writers. I mean, one would be J.D. Salinger uh, and another would be, um, oh God, I'm going to forget, what's it called now? The one about the, oh Jesus, famous American novel. She only really wrote one novel, but it was amazing. Um uh, Bo, Bo oh, um, to, ki to Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah, To Kill a yeah. Mockingbird, you know. I mean, having written the perfect novel, then you can go off and just enjoy <laughs> the rest of your life. And, you know, she didn't write anything after. Uh, sorry, well, she, I think she wrote one other book, didn't she? It was it was found just recently. Yes, yeah, they re-released it, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, and I mean, J.D. Salinger did a, a few other books other than Capturing the Rye. But I think he was very happy with Capturing the Rye and he thought <laughs> he could probably just stop there. <laughs> Whereas the rest of us are just desperately trying to get the next. Good the rest one. of us, the rest of us are figures in a in a a, 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 a Beckett landscape, a Samuel Beckett landscape. Fail, try again, fail, fail better. better. That's what we're all doing. Yeah. But that, yeah, there has to be something. To, I mean, there's something to be said though for, for for that perseverance and keep trying. And I guess that's probably. I think for me, like writing's always been a bit of a compulsive thing. You know, I, um, I'm waiting for it to give. Yeah, rather than I give it up. Um, so, <laughs> but it's also, I mean, the beauty of, write, of being a writer or writing is it can come to you at any age. You know, I mean, I know writers who only started writing in their sixties and seventies or only became successful. P. D. James had been writing for a long time, but didn't actually try to write a novel until her forties. 
um, or late forties, I think even. And you know, it's one of the it, you can't you know you can't become a rock singer age fifty five from nothing really. Uh, it's hard to become an actor from from nothing in your fifties and sixties. You can become a writer yeah. at any any stage in your life, and you can be published and you can be successful in your eighties mm. or your nineties. I think was it Diana Antill was was well on in her years when she uh, when she became successful. And I just I thought I love that about it. I love the fact that it's it's open to everybody. It, you know, it, there's nothing there's nothing um, snobby or elitist about the writing game. We can all be writers mm. if we want to. I love the idea that it's never yeah. too late as well, because there'll be so many people that will have wanted to write for years and years and maybe thought, oh, it's not going to work for me. But, you know, it's never too late. If, if it's something that's in you that you want to do and it's in your gut and you know you want to do it, then, you know, you can, you can do it. Yeah. Do, do either of you guys ever done a creative writing class? I mean, as a student, not as I think a teacher. part of my, part of my did, um, course, possibly, yeah, was... Yeah, I did. I did mm. open university um, degree because I, I failed at school. I was terrible, um, mm. but I did an open university. And we, one of the um, mm. one year Modules. one year module was creative writing. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, you know, people say to me, "Oh, do I need to go to a creative writing class to become a creative writer?" And you go, "No." Uh, next next yeah. question. You know, and um, I, I've tried teaching creative writing from time to time. I, in fact, they made me visiting professor at uh, East Anglia. Um, and I went there for, for, I was there for a year and, and, uh, not every day, every week, but, uh, when I got the, the students in a one-on-one -on -one situation, I said, look, please, whatever you do, try and try and ignore the fact that you're in a university setting yeah. doing a degree in creative writing and just try and rediscover some of the magic of being in your bedroom when you were a teenager scribbling stuff down yeah. for the sheer pleasure of it. Don't try and never to lose that sense that it's fun. It should be fun. It shouldn't be a chore. It's not something you're doing just to get some initials after your <laughs> yeah. letters after your name, uh, but yeah, that was that was interesting. Sort of the teaching of creative writing in an academic institution. Mm. It's tough because I, I don't think it is a science. I don't think it's something that can be taught. It's it, it's it's much more magical than that. There's an element of magic about it. I mean, how does a story decide it's going to come to you and not to somebody yeah. else? <laughs> You know, and yeah. stories are all around us. You know, unplug your headphones, put away your screen and go for a walk and you will find myriad stories waiting to be told all around you. If you're antennae or twitching, you can you can find a hundred stories a day, more than you'll ever use. Lots of characters, lots of settings, lots of moments in time that you can you can capture and put down for posterity. And with the twenty-six letters of the alphabet available to you in writing English. You can write a sentence or a paragraph that's never yes. been written before. Yeah. How extraordinary is that? After all the stuff that's been published in the world, we can all still write sentences and paragraphs and stories mm. that have never been I written. I think about that a lot. Actually. I think about that with music sometimes. I think there's still chord progressions and lyrics that have never been written by anyone, which is massively encouraging, especially if you're struggling to write or make stuff, which I often do. Um, I, find, I, I find the phrase creative writing... <laughs> I must have done it as part of my module at uni. I can't remember, but I always thought that was weird because surely all writing is creative, or is it? Or are they talking about non sort of academic writing? Uh, yeah, I think they're talking about making stuff up from the inside of your head, probably. Uh, you know, I mean, using your imagination. There's got to be a better term than creative yeah. writing. You're right. I mean, McKinney, we've you know we crime writers uh, fight all the time because, of course, our books are put in the crime fiction mm. section in the library and listed on Amazon as crime novels and mm. stuff. And we go, they're just novels. Yeah. 
Novels are just novels, you know, that makes them feel like a lesser form. There's literary fiction over there, mm. WTF. Here's crime fiction over here. Uh, I know lots of crime writers who are, you know, properly as good as, if not better than most of the literary fiction getting published at the moment. Um, and, you know, crime fiction, the reason I came to it is because it can take on very big themes and issues. It can take on big themes of personal morality, state morality. You can talk about politics. You can talk about um, immigration yeah. policy. You can talk about uh, people trafficking. You can talk about very racism, fascism. You can talk about any subject you want inside the crime novel. And you can be talking about these very big themes as well of good and evil and why we human beings keep doing terrible things specifically to each other. All of that is containable within the crime novel. So why should it be suddenly a lesser form? Yeah. Um, and that's changing, but it's changing remarkably slowly in the UK. Is it different in, in other countries, do you feel? Crime? Is it, yeah. Some. Some countries, yeah. I mean, in France, crime novels have always been taken fairly seriously. Um, even the literary writers like Alain Robgrier would use the structure of the crime novel for his nouveau roman. Um, Japan, I think it's been taken fairly, fairly seriously. I mean, the crime novel translates in Japan as the novel of deductive reasoning. Really? Okay. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, so, which not all my books are, but never mind. Um, uh, yeah, but in, in uh, it, there's lots of, you know, in the States, it's not really taken seriously. Um, when you get the big literary prizes, it tends not to be crime mm -hmm. fiction or the thriller that's up there. And yet, if you want to understand the modern world, I would always go. If I want to understand a culture, a country, a city, uh, a nation, and I'm going to visit it, I'll go for the crime novels or the thrillers that are set there. Yeah, that will yeah. tell me about the politics, the people, their fears, their society, what can they, what they're going through at the moment. And you might also pick up some good tips. If you're visiting a city, you might find out where to go and eat yeah. or where to go and drink um, or which parts of the city should be avoided. Yeah, I'd never thought of that. That's absolutely true. <laughs> never thought about that. And I love what you said. Yeah. I mean, on top of everything else, crime novels are great travelogues. You know, yeah. they are great travelogues. Um, if you want to find out about modern Turkey, read Turkish crime fiction. If you want to find out about modern China, not that there's a lot... I mean, the problem with crime fiction in China is it's kind of state-sanctioned and has yeah. to be. But there's some good good crime writers coming out of modern China now. India uh, could be the next big place for crime fiction. There's a writer there called Anita Nair that I've started reading in her first book. Uh, I mean, her, her first two crime novels both take on very big political and social themes. Um to do with any kind of racism and, and, and classism and everything else. I mean, class, of course, is a big thing. The caste mm. system in India is a huge thing. Uh, so, yeah, crime novels can take on big social critiques, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. We need to get people thinking about these these kind of things. In fact, Giles, why would you yeah. write anything else? <laughs> Come on, Giles. <laughs> I'm trying to stick to writing one line that will be 20,000 lines in another person's novel. <laughs> but, that's, but it's interesting, though, because I was thinking, because you didn't, I think your first couple of novels weren't crime novels, and you obviously came to crime, writing crime, and now, obviously, you know, you're synonymous with it. But, well, one thing, do you ever feel like writing something that's not crime, you know? And then also, you've obviously seeped in the, in the, in the genre now. Um, is it, you know, is that your, your main love? <clears throat> um, yeah, well, I mean, those are big questions to answer. I mean, the first novel I wrote, I thought was going to be the great Scottish novel. It was called The Flood. That, no, my very first novel I wrote was a comedy called Summer Rites, R-I-T-E-S, which was never published. Uh, then I wrote um, The Flood, which was about a young guy falling in love with an unobtainable young woman and basically in the town I grew up in, the village I grew up in. Um, that sunk without trace when it was published, The Flood. And then I stumbled on Rebus, this character... 
I was trying to do a modern um, take on Jekyll and Hyde, but I framed it as a crime novel. And then I went off and did a, I wanted to do a Le Carre or a, a Graham Greene style spy novel. So I did a spy novel set in London uh, called Watchmen. And then my editor said to me, look, whatever happened to that guy Rebus? I liked him as a character. And I thought, yeah, and you know what? When I published that bloody book, nobody got that it was meant to be Jekyll and Hyde updated. So I did a second book with Rebus and I called it Hide <laughs> and Seek. And, you know, hiding the, the name Hyde in the title of the book. And still nobody got it, even though I quoted liberally from uh, Jekyll and Hyde in the book. And some of the characters had the names of the characters in Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, still nobody got it. So I, was, so I gave up on trying to write the great contemporary Scottish novel. Um, but what Rebus was allowing me to do was to write about contemporary Scotland from mm. top to bottom, contemporary Edinburgh, um, uh, writing quite dark gothic stories that would look at good and evil, um, look at the political mess we were in and the social mess that we were in and everything else. And so I just thought, well, if he's, if he's, a use, if he's useful to me as a character, then I'll, you know, he can stick around for a while. I didn't know. I had no idea he was going to stick around for 30 years. Um, mm. So I've grown old with him. I've grown old with him. I mean, he's, he was 40 in book one. He's now in his late 60s. I was 25, 26 when I wrote the first book. I'm now 60 myself. So although <laughs> I've slowed the clock for him, sadly, the <laughs> clock has not slowed on me. But he's evolved. He's evolved. And that's keep, that keeps me on my toes. Um, and it means I can't get lazy because I, I, every time I start a new book, he has changed. Yeah. He's got older. He's got health issues now he didn't have before. He's now retired. He's no longer a detective. Um, the challenge for me is how do I inveigle him into a criminal investigation when he's no longer a cop, he's now a member of the public and quite an old one at that. So, yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed hanging out with him. Um, and I've always liked writing and reading crime fiction. I do read a lot of crime fiction. I, I need to know what all the youngsters are up to, all the, 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 the young whippersnappers. And, and crime fiction has always dealt with the fears of its contemporary audience. So at the moment, there are a lot of good young writers using things like the internet um, the internet, CCTV, stuff like that is suddenly the bogeyman, suddenly the thing we're all scared mm. of. We're all scared of being spied on. We're all scared of um, bugs getting into yeah. our computers and stealing all our information or stealing our lives and everything else. So that has become the, the trope for a lot of contemporary crime fiction um, because that's what people are scared of. I dare say the crisis, the COVID crisis, will work its way into a few crime and thriller novels in the, in the coming year. Uh, I won't be writing them. Um, I've done my COVID thing. I did a I did a monologue for Rebus about COVID, which was um, we got the actor Brian Cox, not the astrophysicist, mm -hmm. but the actor Brian Cox, actor. well known Brilliant for Succession. Actor. Yeah, he's got a big hit with Succession at the moment mm -hmm. on TV. Uh, he he did it. He played Rebus on screen for this little one one you know ten minute short that I wrote, and that's available online. You can go yeah. to YouTube and find it if you look up Rebus Lockdown oh, Blues. That sounds great. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I've seen it. Yeah, it's fine. They, but I think that said all everything yeah, I want to yeah. say about the lockdown. You know, I don't think I've got anything else. Yeah, well, who knows? You know, life dictates, doesn't it? And I'm sure that it's the same with uh, plays, theatre, comedy. I'm sure that you know, COVID will will seep into that that as well. Yeah, I mean, the arts in general have had to. I mean, this this commission that I got to do this one this this scene was from the National Theatre of Scotland. They mm -hmm. basically had to go online, and they had to do monologues because that was all people could do. So when we did, you know, and it was all put on Zoom, it was all done via Zoom. So Brian Cox was in Upper State, New York. The director was in Glasgow. I was in Edinburgh. We were all on screen doing Zoom together. And then it was put on the internet for people to see. And I mean, that's the way that if theatre is going to survive in the short term, it's going to have to survive that way. Um, the same goes for, 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 for writing to a certain extent. Yeah. Musicians, oh my God. 
musicians are having it harder than most um, because there's no live gigs. There's just literally no live gigs. And the small, sweaty clubs and pubs that used to host a lot of live events, grassroots live events, are going to be the yeah. final places to open because you don't yeah. want to be shoulder to shoulder with a hundred sweaty no. shouting people, do you? <laughs> it's uh, literally in a, the in a, worst. In a small, intimate, place. enclosed space <laughs> with no oxygen. Yeah, yeah with no oxygen. Um, in fact, I was talking to, I mean, Edinburgh's a great creative place. I meant to talk about this earlier. I've got yeah, time to talk course, about Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, you know, Scotland's a small country, and because Scotland's a small country, the creative people can all get to meet and hang out and end up working with each other, um, which has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed working with musicians, working with, with, with um, uh, playwrights and poets and, and actors and everything else. Um, but also, Edinburgh's a small place, and a lot of creative people do live here, so I bumped into oh, Dylan yeah, Moran, right. oh, amazing. who yeah, lives yeah. in Edinburgh. Uh, bumped into him a few weeks ago and he said, he said, I'm, he said, I'm a killer. He said, I am a killer. Comedians are people whose job is to make people expectorate from their mouths, to have huge gobs of saliva flying yeah. from their mouths in laughter in a small, intimate space full of other people. He said, I'm killing people. If I'm making people laugh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an assassin. He said, I should never get my job back, you know. And, uh, and I mean, that, that goes hand in hand with what I was saying about clubs, you know, live yeah. music clubs, comedy events. I mean, little comedy stores. It's it's a struggle, and when you do, I've watched some comedy yeah. online, not the same. No. I've watched musicians doing gigs from their living rooms, not the same. You just don't get that. I've watched some plays done online. It's just not the same. It, it's a it, it's it's a near equivalence, but it's not an equivalence. And that live event, even a live book event, yeah. where you're in a room with other people, you are feeding off the people who yeah. are listening to you. They're laughing, they're asking questions. You, if they, are they getting it? Are they not getting it? Are they nodding along in agreement? Are they disagreeing with you? All of that, that, that wonderful interaction that you get in a live event, you just can do I just not say get as online, a comedian yeah. that really makes people laugh? That makes me feel so much better that at least I'm not <laughs> killing people. Yeah. So I will, I will take that massively. That makes me feel a lot better. But yeah. But you, you sing in a band, don't you, Ian? Uh, well, we've not done anything this no. year at all. I mean, I am the vocalist. Singer would be putting okay. it to you. Oh, vocalist. Two, yeah. I'm the vocalist <laughs> in a band called Best Picture, which is basically guys in their 50s who <laughs> should know better. Um, and But yeah, but half my band is in another band called Fat Cops. Uh, and Fat Cops were quite successful last year. Um, Al Murray is the drummer. Oh, wow. Al Murray, the comedian, drummer, yeah. is is the drummer in Fat Cops. So he nicked <laughs> half my, my team. Oh. For his yeah. band. So while they were being successful and making an album and doing festivals, my band, Best Picture, were in abeyance. And then just the end of last year, we got a gig supporting a band called Hipsway, quite a big band up here, uh, some Christmas gigs in Edinburgh and London. And we loved it. We just loved being back out there again. And we said, we must get in the studio. We must get rehearsing again. We must start writing some new yeah. stuff. Yeah. Boom, COVID comes along. And none of that has happened. So whether Best Picture will ever come. We, did, we, we released a single. We had one single on pink vinyl. One seven-inch single on pink vinyl, and I was very, very happy with that. You know, for a week, you could go into a record Amazing. shop and find my record. Um, have you always wanted to do that, singing the band? Yeah, man. I was, you know, when I was a kid living in Carden Den, uh, that's what I wanted. I mean, I dream. You know, I used to watch Top of the Pops religiously. I would have Radio One and all the time. Um, I would read Sounds. That was my music newspaper of choice, weekly newspaper with all the music. I thought Alice Cooper was a woman, just a really rough-looking woman. Uh, but, you know, when I first came across Alice Cooper, I saw photographs in the paper, just thought, gee, she's a bit rough. <laughs> uh, you know, that's how naive I was. Um, but yeah, and I just wanted to be in a band. And I was in a band when I was 18 called um, The Dancing Pigs, five second best punk band. <laughs> um, 
So it was punk. There was, was it punk? Was, punk was what sort of opened your... Yeah, man. Yeah. Seven, I was a perfect age for yeah. punk. I was 17, 18, 77, yeah. 78. And let me tell you, punk is possibly the reason I'm here. Because what punk said as a, as a philosophy was yeah. you don't have to have gone to that school. Yeah. You don't have to be able to buy lots of synthesizers. You don't have to have had a classical education. You don't have to know people. If you want to be yeah. creative, just get out there yeah. and do it. So I arrived at Ed University of Edinburgh, October 78. People were saying, let's start a magazine. Let's start a newspaper. Let's put in a poetry slam. You know, you know, let's try and make movies. Let's try and do a play. Let's do this. Let's be in a band. Let's try and, you know, let's, let's write songs. Let's do... People were just... It didn't matter in your background, your class or anything else. Punk gave you... Punk mm. said, just go mm. out there and try. But I guess it, it also didn't matter if you're any good because you will get good by doing this stuff. So don't worry too much about that. Just Just do it and see what happens. Um, and you'll get better because I think that that yeah. puts a lot of people off. Thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not the finished article already. Well, you know, one, you're probably never going to be the finished article, and two, you won't know until you try. And then you might do something, and it takes you in a different direction. And you realise, oh, it's actually this bit of the creativity that I like. But you, you'll never know unless you actually pick yeah. up that pen or pick up the microphone and, and and give it a bash. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, I like I say, I, I work with, I know a lot of people. Um, in various creative industries and the musicians want to be actors the actors want yeah. to be artists the artists want to be poets the poets want to be musicians you know everybody wants to be someone else I mean it's almost uh, it's almost allied to that imposter syndrome yeah. it's like we're none of us are quite doing the thing we yeah. really wanted to do when we were <laughs> it's kids true. it's true <laughs> yeah. so well true. I, I always so wanted true. to be a, a pop star not, maybe not a pop star a rock star or a singer when I was younger was that or a footballer? And then I got to the age of like 18 and realised it wasn't, probably wasn't going to be a footballer because no one wanted to play me, let alone professionally. <laughs> um, but I've now got a YouTube channel. It's a comedy football music YouTube channel. I've had 35 million views around the world and I cannot sing My for God. shit. But it doesn't no, matter. You, I can attest to that. <laughs> Honestly, I have to EQ my voice in Logic so much to make it sound half decent. But it doesn't matter. I'm still doing it. Yeah, but if you're in, if you're sing if you're a singer in a band, it's not about being a good singer; it's about being a good exactly. frontman. That's what it's about. You know, I, I, I'm not a good singer, but I think I am a good frontman. You know, stick me in front of an audience, <laughs> I take them Perfect. with me. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> if, if by force, <laughs> if necessary. <laughs> what's your What's your um, sort of shtick then when you're performing? Are, are you quite intense, or is it uh, bravado? Uh, what, what? I think. Well, what is it? I don't know. It's just, you know, you just inhabit a different space. You, it's that Jekyll and yeah, Hyde totally, thing again. Yeah. I, just want to, I just want to perform. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of bouncing up and down yeah. on stage as far as I can, age 60. Um, you know, trying to involve the audience as much as possible, um, pointing at them, waving at them, trying to get them waving back. I mean, during the Christmas gigs, I had a variety of little kids' instruments I would bring out and Amazing. play kazoos and stuff awesome. like that and uh, jingle bells and stuff, you know. <laughs> Get everybody in the Christmas mood. Um, not going to be much of that going on this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, people say we're, we we sound a little bit like Echo and the Bunny or okay, cool. like that, or tear, Teardrop Explodes. You know, it's that kind of vibe it's got going for it. Um, also, it's a it's a means of of uh, marketing my books. <laughs> Waving your uh, book but, you know, because we, we've got yeah, I've got a song called In a House of Lies, which was my previous Brilliant. book. And um, and I'm, I'm a friend of mine who's a musician who I got friendly with fairly recently through social media, Dean Owens. He's now written a song called um, uh, "What's My New Book Called?" Uh, what is my new book called? Um, a song for the dark yeah. times. Yeah. So he's he's written a song called "A Song for the Dark Times," and he's put that Amazing. on YouTube as well. So that's Excellent. quite fun. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a lot of fun. 
And I mean, I, you know, I've got to meet a lot of really great. I got to, I've got to work with people like <gasps> wow. Van Morrison and stuff because I've mentioned them so much in my books. Music gets mentioned so much in Arabus novels that every musician knows I'm a big fan of music, and that's led to me being able to meet the Rolling oh, Stones backstage. Man, yeah. You know, Whoa. meet Brian Wilson backstage, do onstage events Whoa. with Van Morrison. Um, it's you know, I've DJed <gasps> for the Charlatans at the Usher Hall in Edinburgh, which is a three thousand. What was the first track? Theater. Do you can remember? I think it was Isaac Isaac Hayes <laughs> <Steve> from <laughs> Shaft. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Who's the Black Private? Yeah. Probably that's probably the first crime novel I ever read because I wasn't old enough to see the movie. Oh, wow. really? I wasn't old, so I bought the single and then I had to read the book. I mean, that was a big thing. Was I wasn't old enough to go and see The Godfather or The Exorcist or Jaws. I couldn't get into the cinema, yeah. but nobody stopped me getting the book. Well, that's <gasps> the thing, isn't it? Yeah. So for me, literature literature was always yeah. an exciting taboo thing. Yeah, you could access all this stuff that grown ups. Yeah. I've got and 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 because you're reading a book, it's all right, isn't it? Because <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, Charles. By the way, yeah, Charles, next amazing. Christmas, if things are settled back to back down, we're coming to Edinburgh and we're gonna go and watch Ian's band. We'll be we'll be in, we'll be in the front yeah, row. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 I'm well up for that. Well, I play in a band. I mean, I play in a band as well. Very lucky to play in a band, and very much. I think people come and see me play, and they they again that Jekyll and Hyde thing because I I really sort of crash around on stage moshing and like you know <laughs> close to sort of almost violence <laughs> and they think oh my god that's not like you normally so there is something visceral about playing in a band and performing in a band i think more than anything actually yeah i love yeah. it I love. and it's like i mean you know get, bands usually come together rock bands usually come together because they're a gang of mates yeah, at school aren't basically they? yeah and that's what it is for me when you it's like getting together with your mates uh, it's the sort of thing we all used to do when we were kids, and and some of us sadly are still doing it in yeah. our sixties. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, you know, but yeah, I do like I like getting together with my mates and just just hanging yeah. out with them and just creating yeah. and you know and playing instruments. There's something yeah, there's just something special about it. I I do miss that. I do miss getting in a room with the three other guys, the two other guys I'm in a band with, and, and just jamming. It will come back, guys. Mm, yeah. It will come back. One, it will. It will. It will. It will. It, it will. just it might take a while, but we'll. So one of the great sadnesses of my life is that I've never learned to play a musical instrument. I mean, I've tried, uh, and I'm just, I can't do it. I've not got whatever the bit of brain you need to learn a musical what would, instrument. What would be the instrument you go for? Uh, it would be a, a, a toss-up between, um, well, you know what? I like a lot of electronic mm. music, so maybe just getting some of the electronics, but that's cheating a little bit. Tenor sax. Oh, I love amazing. a little bit of jazz tenor sax. Okay, yeah. Yeah. That's... yeah. I write to that quite a lot. Um, I can't write to, I've always got music playing in the background when I'm writing, but I can't have lyrics mm. because then I'll be listening to the lyrics and not writing. So electronica is very good for working to and, and very late night jazz, laid back lounge jazz is very good for writing to. Um, it just creates a bubble. Yeah. Uh, where it's just, it's just me and, and the, and the story. That's all that exists inside that bubble in the outside mm. world has ceased to exist. So it's creating a kind of slight, it's like an atmosphere, um, around me. Brian, you know, is fantastic. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, fantastic. you know, I've, I've written so many albums, uh, so many, written so many books with Brian Eno, music for airports playing in the background on a loop. Yeah, when I, in fact, having an office away from the home is good because when I used to have an office in the home, my wife would come and say, is that the same bloody album? Because I would just put, it, I put the CD on repeat and play it for eight hours. I, I listen to music when I but, write as well. And my, yeah, my wife's like, I don't, she just, I can't, she likes to work in silence when she's like writing mm. and stuff. Right. Um, if she's doing work. Uh, she's a teacher, so when she's marking or whatever. But has it got to be instrumental music? Uh, sometimes I I'll, I'll, I'll have stuff with with words in anything that that, huh. that can kick in a a bit of emotion for me, whatever <laughs> it might be, whether it's upbeat, low, but you know, downbeat, or what, yeah. you know. So yeah, sometimes um, instrumental. I like kind of 
sometimes I listen to things like Iron Audi, which is obviously more classical music, mm. but it's so emotionally mm. more and so mm-hmm. emotive. So stuff like that. But um, yeah, I often, I've made playlists. I mean, I made playlists for 152 days and I've made playlists for other stuff I've written. It's um, a good idea. That, that, that are just stuff that um, I, f- I can feel, yeah, like key changes and stuff that I think will like, move on the next bit of the writing. But it's interesting because I, I know a lot of people sort of think that's weird that you'd listen to music while you're writing. No, I, I mean, I, uh, well, I don't think it is weird, uh, but uh, yeah. uh, whatever works yeah. for somebody. I mean, some people need silence, some people don't. Um, I, what I, There's one band I can listen to because I can't make out a word um, the singer is singing, and that's the Cocteau Twins. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, co- yeah, you know, because I don't know what she's saying <laughs> about it, but I can't, make, I can't make head nor tail it. I'm very bad. You know they're called Mondegreens. Mondegreens is when you mishear lyrics, and I'm very, I've always yeah. misheard lyrics. My whole life I have misheard lyrics badly. I do, I do remember once putting on, uh, I thought, right, I'm writing a car chase, a car chase scene. I'll put on some exciting music and that will make the car chase more exciting. I put on some Jesus and Mary okay. chase. Now, whether that, whether that improved the car chase scene I was writing or not, I've got no idea. Oh, yeah, it's, a, it's funny. I, 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 do, I do enjoy that way, of, that way of writing for sure. But yeah, that's, yeah. We've all got different ways yeah. of doing it, though, haven't we? That's yeah. the thing. And that, Whatever works, no for you, right way. works for you. Well, Ian, it's been... Such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Um, before we go, we always like to ask our guests, because obviously the the, the podcast is, called, is blank. It's about blank moments in life. And I think Jim and I started the podcast. I was having a blank moment in writing. I was having, I guess, like writer's block. I know some people say that doesn't think exist, but it certainly existed for me. And obviously Jim was having a... Um, was having the fear of going back on stage mm-hmm. and performing. So that's kind of how the podcast started. But I, I know we've kind of alluded to certain things like the editorial stuff, and stuff that, you know, sometimes you've had difficult moments in. But, you know, if, if you've got any advice for our listeners about, you know, when you're going through probably, a, you know, maybe a blank patch or, you know, having a writer's block or whatever it might be, what kind of advice could you give our listeners who might be going through something similar? I mean, I think... if. if your subconscious is always working, even if you're mm-hmm. if you're not aware of it. And so, if you go for a walk, often if you go for a nice long walk, you will find the answer coming to you. Um, also, discussing. I mean, I, my wife often I bounce ideas. Not ideas. I'm stuck. I go look. I need to get this character from there to there. How can I do that? And she'll suggest ways that maybe that can. So sharing it. Yeah. Sharing it can work. Um, going for a nice. You know that cliche of sleeping on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not quite sleeping on it, but going for a walk is almost the equivalent of that. Where you're just your subconscious is still working away at it while you're just chilling a little bit, um, and also I'll skip things. I mean, if I'm writing a piece and I'm go, I don't know what I'm doing there. I'll just jump to the next bit, oh, yeah. and then I can go back and fix it later. Um, I I won't fret about it too much. I mean, maybe the you know that that is that's one way of dealing with writer's block is to go well. I just won't write that yeah. bit yet. I'll just jump onto this character or this situation or this scene, and I'll maybe come back and fix it later on. And you start to see ways you can fix it retrospectively. So, yeah, I mean, again, there's, there's no instant cure for, for that kind of blankness. But what we were talking about earlier with people, you know, switching off and being bored, allowing themselves to be bored, and that's when the ideas can start coming in. I think there's something to be said for that, of just switching off. There's an awful lot going on around us all the time at the moment and more and more ways of that being transmitted in front of our eyes and sent to our, our, our synapses. You've got to you've got to switch off from time to time. You've really got to. Otherwise, you just are overwhelmed. There's an information overload, twenty four seven, and we need to be able to switch off. 
I really feel that with, you know, I used to see business people sitting in airport lounges reading a book or reading a newspaper, mm. and now they're working. Yeah. They're on their laptops or on their phones because they have laptops and phones, and they're never out of the office. They're never allowed to switch off. And we all need to switch off. I mean, we've got a mental health crisis, a worldwide mental health crisis, because of the way we are ordering our world at the moment. So if switching off means reading a good book or listening to some great comedy or music... I totally fine, agree. I think, I think currently, advice, yeah. because we are all switched on so much, people expect you to be able to work longer hours and be more accessible, but you mm. need to just shut the laptop, put down the phone and say, I am not working now. I am taking time for myself. I think that's that's so true. As, and I'm a massive hypocrite because I never do it, but I think it's absolutely true. Just <laughs> do that thing that takes you away from everything, makes you happy, and you'll come back, you know, re-energised. And inspired sometimes, I think, especially if you're going away and reading a book or listening to some music or watching a movie, whatever it might be. Um, yeah. Yeah, it inspires yeah. me generally. So it's something I need to do more of. I think, I mean, I'm having to think back a long time now, but I think if you've got a one-year-old, you're probably having to switch off from time to time because that one-year-old oh, is yes. going to take up your whole world yeah. for periods of time. So you can't, you can't be worrying or thinking about anything else. Your yeah. attention is on the one-year-old. And that, that in itself is a way of switching off and, you know, yeah. reorganising the world um, because that, that tiny Absolutely. little life yeah, is what yeah. matters. More than all this other, all this other crap that's going on. It's true because she is at the stage bit. now where if I take my eye off her for even half a second, she's she's moved, she's gone. She's gone the other end of the kitchen. She's climbing something. <laughs> yeah. She's pulling something down herself. Like she is, her her life now. Her yeah. her mission is to basically try and stress me out, and she's very good at it. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. And it does. It does. It it makes you present. It makes you instantly present, um, which is. Uh, <laughs> which is a challenge but it's a good one it's a good one well yeah it, Ian thank you so much for your time today thank okay. you guys I'm going to switch off thank the recording you. device now I don't even know what happened I said, <laughs> Ian Rankin on the Blank Podcast, what a legend. And then you just disappeared. I know, but that's because um, so on the uh, device I used to record at my end, I had I put, I put pushed up the wrong knob. <laughs> Probably the only word I could use. I won't laugh. I did laugh. But I, I'll dial. Dial. I, put, I pushed up the wrong dial. Yeah. And um, so you weren't coming through. So I was like, oh, Oh, right. Okay. But obviously you were. It doesn't matter because you're recording your end anyway. Exactly. So exactly. In fact, we, I don't. Need to, I could just turn you back down again. <laughs> Probably. We can just talk and not. Well, I'm going to turn it back up. Can you, that's just silly. Can you ridiculous. imagine if there was a way? Uh, this is all getting cut. Um, if there was a way. No, for, I'm this. Uh, if there was a way for in the future podcast. Um, if you listen to a podcast, right, and there's like four guests on there, and you really didn't like one of the guests on, on your app, you could just turn down one of the guests. Oh, I see. Well, would you not just have... It'd just be silence, though, wouldn't it? When they're talking. If they were talking. Yeah. But then you wouldn't have to hear it. I don't know. I, I, I just oh. thought that... I don't know how you would do that, well, because we, we mix well, it in one track and not four tracks, but... Yeah, but I suppose you could do that and then have sort of elevator music play. <laughs> yeah. Like you're waiting. <laughs> um, They've just got out the elevator. Yeah, yeah like you're on the... Like, like, you know, when you like phone the doctors waiting for a, an appointment and then that sort of music Hold music, on. yeah. 
Yeah, hold music, basically. Well, yeah. if anyone techie knows how to make that happen, um, <laughs> you can have my idea as long as I get a nice big cut from it, which would be lovely. Um, There's got to be an app. It, someone somewhere. somewhere is going to make that. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, you could call it the blank app, actually, because you're blanking out someone's track yeah. anyway. Anyway. Oh my god, the the endless possibilities. Anyway, look, <laughs> I think people will probably want to use it on this <laughs> yeah, conversation right now. Um, look, just I mean, we spoke before about this episode, but what a legend um, Ian is. Mm. Um, we're fascinating. We're so lucky we get these people on who are absolute sort of masters of their craft and legends in their game, and 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 giving us real sort of deep dive insight into how they work. And you know, Ian was no different. Yeah, it was brilliant, and it was lovely to to speak to Ian um got to know Ian a little bit on Twitter and it's just so nice to speak to him in the in the flesh you know well not in the flesh over zoom but um to see to see him and uh yeah just to hear so much about his writing process which is obviously um, something that I'm obviously really um fascinated by because you know being writing myself it's always really really nice to hear and interesting to hear how others go about their yeah um their writing process and what was really interesting is there's some of the things that he does i do so like listening to music when we write yeah. when he writes and printing stuff off as well like printing off the manuscript um that's really um something i do as well and i think like like you said like having that physical book mm. in front of you is much easier to sort of get to grips with what it's uh how it's reading i when we did when we were writing the blank pod uh, sorry when we were writing the blank book at the start of this year which obviously we can now talk about as we announced it a few weeks would have been a few weeks ago now by the time this comes out um i listened to music as well so obviously first book i'd ever written or been a part of um i listened to me i listened to um i just went on spotify and found classical piano music and just listened to piano classical piano music because i think ian's right about lyrics if there's certainly if it's lyrics you know from songs it, 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 they mm. pull you in especially if it's good lyrics they pull you in too much so i just listened to sort of classical piano music and then indie sort of indie stuff that i didn't really know um but yeah so it works for me as well but you know everyone's got their own process yeah exactly yeah yeah they do and uh, but that was really fascinating for me and yeah just like hearing about how he's been sort of coping over this period and yeah. you know he, he as he's alluded to he was very uh he'd been very busy um yeah. and working you know working for that and that, i guess for a lot of people that's been a distraction it's been nice mm. to be able to dive into projects um over this period so yeah it was so nice to talk to him and uh really really lovely guy top man i mean we're so lucky all these guests are really lovely and they just they're yeah. so good to us so thank you ian so much for coming on and chatting to us and we will go and see his band play at christmas one year that Absolutely. Is, we're going to do that. That's uh, That'd be a plan, I think. Um, Definitely. So, yeah, that brings Giles to the end of another episode. Um, I, was <laughs> I thought for... you were about to say that begins the... That, that, <laughs> that, that is the end of you. <laughs> That's the end of everything. Um, <laughs> no, I always feel a bit sad at the end of, when we're, sort of, we're wrapping up now. It's the end of yeah, it. Yeah, I do but, too. But in the same time, sort of like almost like celebratory that we've had another great episode. Um, yeah. So, yeah, listen, we hope our listeners have a good week of whatever you're doing. If you're being creative or not, if you're just chilling or whatever, you know, have a good week. Um, just hope the weather's not too bad. I'm rambling now and you can say goodbye because I'm just going to trail off into nothingness. Well, thanks for listening to The Blank Podcast. <laughs> this has been a Blank Podcast production by The Blank Podcast people. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Thank you.
This is a Blast Box Media Podcast.